This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This one's got a real good taste, yeah. That's got the word, just for the taste. Now we get warm. so funny elton john saw him in concert at bc play stadium years and years and years ago and he was sitting at his baby grand piano and he had a diet coke can up on the piano the entire time and clearly product placement i don't want to single out necessarily diet coke there are lots of uh places where aspartame has been a huge part of the the sweetener um, but Diet Coke is the one, I remember the first one you tasted and you thought, oh, that does kind of taste like Coke, you know, back in the day. And and many people just replaced all sodas stocked in sugar with a diet alternative that had aspartame in it. Now there's some concern. The World Health Organization moving towards uh, classifying aspartame as a carcinogen. I can't tell you how many people are already emailing me on this. Jody at cknw.com. That's Jody with a Y, Jody at cknw.com. I mentioned off the top of the show that we'd be discussing this with Professor Timothy Caulfield, who is a professor and research director of Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta. He's an author, he's a speaker, he's a TV host, he's my friend. And I always look to you, Professor Caulfield, to give us some perspective on some of these big headlines, misinformation, disinformation, fact, always science up first with you. Thanks for taking some time for us today. Thanks for having me on, Jody. And it's a a great topic. And I have to confess, right off the top, I'm a recovering, a recovering Diet Coke addict. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) this one, this one I can relate to. You're talking to one. Because when I was a teenager, I did that too. I'm like, I'm never drinking regular Coke again. Why would I do that? And I would drink Diet Coke and it almost became like my coffee to some because it is caffeinated and you would just, it just got easiest. Well, I mean, it's one calorie by Cor- uh, Corey LaTondra, our, our producer here. He's like, it's Coke zero for me. Same thing. Uh, are, are we going to see some significant health impacts to the chronic aspartame drinking? Is our Diet Coke going to kill us? Well, well, first of all, you know, I think we have to really analyze what this headline, and this headline is everywhere right now, right, mm-hmm. what it really means. So there is an entity within the World Health Organization called the, uh, it's the Agency for Research on, on Cancer, and they categorize cancer um, risk, and, and it really is just an analysis of the available data. So they have, you know, class one risk, and these are, these are things that likely cause, can, you know, for sure cause cancer, like plutonium or something like that, right? And yeah. then you have a 2A categorization, which is, you know, probably causes cancer. Then you have a 2B categorization, which is possibly causes cancer. And that's where they're putting aspartame. And I think it's really important to recognize that 
the data is messy, and that's why it's in 2B. So it's not like this is a slam dunk. And if you go and you look in the literature, it's, it's really – it's pretty messy. It's pretty messy. A lot of animal studies, some you know, observational studies, that kind of stuff. So they're saying it's a poss- it possibly could cause cancer. And if you think of the other things that are in that category, aloe vera is in that category. Um, pickled veggies are in that, in that category. Really? Uh, yeah, so that's it's important to recognize what's in that category. And the other thing I think is really important to recognize is dose issue. Whenever you're talking about mm-hmm. you know a carcinogen, you have to think how much do you need to consume or be exposed to to really have a significant risk, a kind of risk we need to worry about. Um, and n- not all carcinogens are necessarily dangerous in small amounts, if that makes sense. So something can be in cons- carcinogen, but the way that humans are exposed to it, it isn't really that dangerous. So we have dose, messy data, and even even if the, the risk calculation is correct, it's probably a low risk. Now, keep in mind, we're looking at this through the lens of someone who is a former, <laughs> so maybe there's a confirmation <laughs> bias there. But, yeah, I, you know, I think, it's, I think it's fair to say that the risk is probably low if it does exist. And but we still should be researching this stuff. I'm going to share a little stat that I found here that aspartame is safe to consume within accepted daily limits, which speaks to what you were just referencing there. Like, what is the example? How much of it do you need to consume in order for there to be a risk? And and in this one example cited in the in the Global BC um, news story on this is an adult weighing 60 kilograms or 132 pounds would have to drink between 12 and 36 cans of diet soda, depending on the amount of drink, uh, aspartame in the beverage, but 12 to 36 cans of diet soda every day to be at risk. So that, that does give you, um, some perspective in terms of that, you know, and, and you go back to the class one, two or three, or is it A, B and C, um, you know, the obvious one like plutonium or cigarette smoke or other things you like, this is cancer causing. Uh, aspartame is not in that category. When you said aloe vera, I just about fell out of my chair. Aloe vera is in the same class as, as aspartame now. That's right. And there, and there are other things like hot water. I think it's, you know, hot, hot beverages, I think, are is a, a 2A. So it's above. It's above. Wow. Uh, Okay. aspartame and in in the number one category you have things like meat right so again that goes to the exposure issue the dose issue it's not saying if you have you know one hamburger you're going to get cancer um so you know this is messy and i know it's really frustrating for people when you know they hear see these headlines and then they hear how you know you know messy the data actually is uh, so I think this is one of those situations where you know you should take a you know step back, follow the literature, and you know that that cliche about moderation is is probably your your best guide. I got a couple of emails from people. Linda sent me one that said my scientist daughter advised me not to use aspartame in the 1970s. Soon after, I was able to like water. <laughs> people, people are, are are with us on this. And and Mary sent me a note that said so so good to have you on. My five cents worth aspartame is that its ills are not new. The effects now being brought up, um, and and she goes on to reference how um, the uh, that there were some seizures associated with aspartame. Do do we know anything about that in any of these studies? Well, you know, I, I think you know, b- both of those comments go to th- the reality that this has been controversial for a while, right, for a yeah. while. 
And, and most of the studies, if you look at them, you know, they're observational studies and, and epidemiologists who I really respect have, have, have noted this. The reality is it's pretty comforting, right? You know, the, the, the data on, on the health effects of aspartame. You know, I, I don't think there's any sort of, you know, alarm bell kind of research uh, out there, research results out there, on whether you're talking about uh, cancer or, or other, other ailments. But, it, that, you know, given how much we consume this, you know, the research, I think, remains yeah. important. And the other interesting thing, Jody, is most people drink this because they're trying to avoid calories. And the data on, on weight loss and, and, you know, weight maintenance is also interesting and probably messier than a lot of people people realize. And there's also really interesting research. Some of this is speculation building on, on uh, other research that about, you know, how its impact on our sweet preferences. You know, now, I said I was a former <laughs> uh, yeah. Diet Coke addict. I've segued away from drinking any kind of sweetened beverages at all. I, you know, I drink, I drink water. Coffee, 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 and then there's the alcoholic beverages, which I try to drink in extreme moderation. But that's it for fluids for me, yeah. <laughs> you know. So you know, uh, there's some evidence that, that that makes sense. At your peak, Professor Timothy Caulfield. At your peak, how many diet cokes would you drink a day? Oh, I was bad. <laughs> you know, I was. I want to know. And, and we were going lowbrow. We were going lowbrow <laughs> diet coke. We're talking, you know, the the big gulp. And I went oh. for the super big gulp, which my beautiful wife used to call the super big pail. So, and, and then our our car would have the the carpet of big gulp uh, <laughs> things in the back. Yeah, it was it was ugly, Jody. It was ugly. That's <laughs> hey, thanks for coming clean on the uh, the diet coke addiction. That is next level. I was more a can girl, but I would I, on some days I could have gotten six cans of diet coke in me. It was kind of like my constant little buddy that I had with me at all times. But oh, I, I like the up. cans more. You know that first hit yeah. of a of a on a yeah. hot day of a cold diet coke. Oh man, oh, I'm yeah. I'm getting a buzz just thinking about it. <laughs> oh, that takes you back, doesn't it? Oh, I'd like to buy the world a coke. Hey, bringing everybody together, having a bit of kumbaya, whatever it takes to bring people together. Let's do it because the divisiveness is unbelievable. We are with Professor Timothy Caulfield. He is the professor and research director of the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta. He is about science up first. He is literally writing books about making sure that you fact check what you what you know to be true or what you've checked to be true. A speaker and TV host always able to give us the scientific perspective in a way that's very consumable for us. And frankly, Professor, respectfully, you want to bring people together, but but also we'll call out the misinformation and disinformation where it stands. So where I want to go with you next here in this segment is to talk about how it is that rational, educated, like truly smart, well-meaning people seem to be so susceptible to online lies. What is happening? Well, it, it's true. And, and I think it goes to something you said in that intro there. You know, we want to try to bring people together. And unfortunately, our, our you know, social media, but really our entire information ecosystem is so polarized now. And that facilitates this phenomenon where even very, you know, rational, informed people can be misinformed. So the study that just came out, you know, one of the great things, Jody, is there's so much research happening in this space right now, and, and, which is great. And this study is a good example of that. It just came out. It, it found that even rational people can be misinformed 
because of the structure of the information networks that they, you know, they, they live in. So what do I mean by that? You know, people live in echo chambers, and within those echo chambers, um, your misperception can be confirmed, and it can be more difficult for you to come to the correct conclusion regardless of the evidence that you're exposed to. And they found exactly that, right, that in this noisy, noisy information environment, it's easy to continue to be misinformed. So our cognitive biases come into play. If there's someone that you disagree with and they're providing you with accurate information, you're going to discount it, right? Uh, if yeah. there is a lie that, you, that confirms your beliefs cir- circulating within your information network, you're going to believe it and perhaps not fact check it. Now, the good news, Joey, the good news is these researchers found that eventually, eventually, uh, the, the truth starts to rise, to bubble to the surface and, and become the agreed upon fact. But all the things I just talked about, even for rational people, make, makes that process incredibly inefficient. And, and unfortunately, you know, we live in echo chambers now, and so there's a lot of inefficiency out there. Yeah, rage is driving the algorithms that we are all buying into social media wise, right? Whether it's Twitter or any meta platform, Facebook, Instagram, all of that, TikTok, all of it, Um, where there used to be so many go-to places for the majority of society to get fact-based news. That has been watered down in a way, like you say, that silo, that echo, echo chamber. There are truly people who, even when they seek out um, fact-checking, will be delivered um, falsities or disinformation and misinformation. How is it that we break those cycles? Or is, is it futile to try and even do that, given what we're up against? Well, two, two really interesting, very recent studies highlight what you're talking about. So this, a study that just came out, I'm going to say last week, last week found that the good news, the good news, fact-checking does work. Um, so what they did is they, they it was a, a large group of individuals, and they, they ran a study where they found that if, you know, you fact-check something, people do change their opinion. But the bad news, going to the echo chamber problem, is if the fact-check, if the fact-check countered their previous belief, they became more negative towards the media, thus sort of facilitating mm. polarization. You know what I mean? So, okay, okay, I, I agree do. with, I get the fact check, I get the fact check, but, you know, let's pick on CNN. Or, you know, CNN, I've never liked you, and, and this just confirms I like you less now because you're telling me something I don't want to know. And that's, we all do this. We all do this, right? Here's another really yeah. extreme study, Jody, that's amazing. It's one of my favorite recent ones, but it's very depressing. They found, it was a study where they looked at both the general public and physicians to explore their their perceptions on COVID therapy. So think ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and they found that for both the public and for physicians, the strongest predictor of their perceptions on COVID therapies was what cable news show they watched. So that means in the United States, you could go to a doctor and their perception on what COVID therapy to use is more strongly influenced by their favorite, you know, whether they watch CNN or Fox News, than the science. How depressing is that? Very, very depressing. And when you see people who have made their entire careers on misinformation, disinformation, and anti-science, uh, looking to, to seeking out the highest office in the United States, I mean, that is 
concerning to say the least. It, re- it really is. And I think what all, but you know, all of this research suggests, despite how angry it makes me and frustrated it makes me, we need to be empathetic. We need to remember that all of us can be susceptible to misinformation. We all have our biases and we need to try, try to check them when we're looking at the data. It's very difficult to do, but you make it easier, especially on your Twitter feed, because it does. I see you standing up for science and and with the facts attached to it. And that is so key in the learning piece of this puzzle. Honestly, Professor Caulfield, I appreciate you. You know that I do. Thank you for making so much time for us today. Thanks for having me on, Jody.